Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Maybe it's just that you don't know how to use social courtesy. Oh, that's old-fashioned. Watch how Lizzie Post and Dan Post act as host and hostess. They know that courtesy means showing respect, thinking of the other person, real friendliness. Hello. And welcome to Awesome Etiquette. Where we explore modern etiquette through the lens of consideration, respect, and honesty. On today's show, we take your questions on differing opinions over thank yous, what's appropriate to ask of inexperienced hosts, a drive through baby shower, and the surnames on your family's stationery. For Awesome Etiquette sustaining members, our question of the week is about inviting the parents of those in your bridal party to your wedding. Plus, your most excellent feedback, etiquette salute, and a postscript where we dive into the rituals of dinner by Margaret Visser and talk about table talk. All that coming up. Awesome Etiquette comes to you from the studios of our home offices in Vermont and is proud to be produced by the Emily Post Institute. I'm Lizzie Post. And I'm Dan Post-Senning. Hey, cuz. How's it going? It's good because you were a workhorse this past weekend. I was seeing stuff come through on email and go up and I was I was it was fun one fun watching your Saturday and Sunday go through. I was doing some work as well and I was like, look at my cuz go. Yes. <laughs> Well, I have to um, derail our show just a little bit right at the start. I have a great big thank you to issue, and I need to make it a public thank you to some of our listeners. And it's a very specific subset of our listeners. This is a thank you for Alka and Kamal, who are my in-laws. They're Pooja's parents, and they're the reason you saw all that work getting done this weekend. <laughs> my, I, do, I assume they weren't doing the work for you, but my guess is they, they might have helped out and given you space to get work done. <laughs> I tell you, it felt like they were doing the work for me. It felt like they yeah. just like lifted me up, and, and um, they really had Pooja uh, slept funny and had a crick in her neck. And I try not to laugh when I tell the story, but she couldn't turn her head side to side for a couple of days. Yeah, it was that kind of a thing. So I'd walk into a room and I'd be like, hey, Pooch. And she'd have to turn around to face me. Yes, totally. uh, so she was um, functional, but, uh, you know, operating at some percentage of her total physical capacity. And yeah. I had a really busy weekend ahead of me and she called her folks and they – put on the back capes and jumped in their car and drove here and spent three nights with us and um, really helped watch the girls so that I could go to an office and focus and not feel like I was leaving Pooja in a tough situation. Yeah, <laughs> and it's easy like, to say good luck with the neck, honey. Oh, sorry. The baby's crying. I'll, I'll go in the car. Like that's just not the kind of husband and dad you are. <laughs> it's hard. It's not. And I, I was saying to Alka and to Kamal, you, you know, I know it was Pooja that called and asked for your help, but really you're you're here to help me because usually she could turn 
well, she couldn't turn at all, but usually she would <laughs> ask me to to help out if something like that was happening. And I, I, I have a hard time saying no, but I really it, it was a better weekend for me to spend focused on what I was. So thank you, Kamal and Alka. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Awesome Etiquette, for um, being patient with me while I spend a little bit of our intro talking about it. It brings up a bigger etiquette point, which is sort of twofold. One is is asking for favors or asking for help. And the other is being grateful for that help. I guess you could, you know, you could put it through three different ways. It's, it's how you choose to, to deal with that ask as well as another aspect of it. But it is, it's, it's interesting. There are times where it's really hard to ask family for help and to step in when we need it. And other times where it's really easy. And I mean, I've seen how much my family has been helping each other through this, whether it's, you know, my parents literally being extra helping hands for me with some projects around, around my house since we're all in a little pod together, or uh, it's been helping my sister out with daycare and taking care of uh, their grandkids so that my sister and her husband can can focus on some things. You know, in this case, both those examples are family help and, and we're kind of in little family pods. But it is amazing when it comes and when you feel comfortable making the ask, what a true relief it really is. If you can cultivate that kind of relationship where the the help feels good, my my friend was over and she's a single mom of two, and she was talking about the parents that she kind of partnered with up during this um, pandemic so that they could each get to their respective jobs, you know, and her job is an outside of the home job. And so she really needs people she can trust and places her kids feel safe being and in her little neighborhood, she was able to create that. And it's, you know, it's, it's not always family. Sometimes it's, it's the family we make or the, the neighborhood and the community around us. But it's, sometimes it's the feeling okay receiving it, right, Dan? <laughs> you know, like feeling like, okay, I will. They, they will come and I, I, I will go down to the office and it's okay. This is the plan. And then the feeling grateful for it. It's a good feeling at the end to feel grateful for, for people being able to step in and help. I, I certainly am really grateful whenever my parents, they're, they're getting ready to come for a weekend to help uh. Uh, with some things around the house. So I'm about to have that kind of a, a, assistance, but it'll be to get home stuff done rather than work stuff done well i'm sure you will remember to thank them and I will. I will. knowing your parents <laughs> Good reminder though <laughs> i'm sure that they will be equally gracious and tell you oh it's nothing and we just love doing it and we're so glad that we're <laughs> able to do something that's helpful and useful for you i hope so and i hope that all of you who are out there exchanging help are, are able to have such kind interactions around it um, it certainly makes it something that we all, I think, lean, lean for more when we have good experiences with it. And etiquette can help that. No question. You know, etiquette can also be helpful with some listener questions. <laughs> you think? Just that is what this show is about. Let's get to it. Let's do it. Awesome Etiquette is here to answer your questions. You can email them to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are Awesome Etiquette. Just remember to use the hashtag Awesome Etiquette with your post so that we know you want your question on the show. Get support from StoryWorth. There are some stories about your mom's life that you truly never get tired of hearing. 
From hilarious to heartfelt, tear-jerking to plot-twisting, Mom's retelling of the events always brings a bit of joy. Just in time for Mother's Day, we here at Awesome Etiquette found the perfect gift that can capture all of your mom's stories for your family forever. It's called StoryWorth. StoryWorth helps you preserve precious memories and stories from your mom or a mother figure in your life for years to come. Here's how it works. Each week, StoryWorth emails your loved one a thought-provoking question that you get to help pick. What was your first job? Who was your first crush? <laughs> StoryWorth makes the writing process a breeze. All your loved one needs to do is to respond to the email prompt with a story. Long or short, it doesn't matter. I did this with my mom and it was really, really rewarding. You'll be emailed a copy of your loved one's responses as they're submitted over the course of the year. You'll get to enjoy their retelling of the stories, some you probably already know, or maybe the ones that you're surprised by you haven't heard before. <laughs> After that year of fun discovery and reminiscing, StoryWorth compiles your loved one's stories and photos into a beautiful keepsake hardcover book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. You can even keep a copy of the book for yourself. Give all the moms in your life a unique, heartfelt gift that you all will cherish for years. Story Worth. Right now, save $10 on your first purchase when you go to storyworth.com manners. That's storyworth, S-T-O-R-Y-W-O-R-T-H dot com slash manners. It's manners with an S to save $10 on your first purchase. And now back to our show. Our first question is titled, Thank You, Theatrics. We recently learned that our 30-year-old daughter failed to send a thank you note to a longtime family friend for their very generous financial gift that was sent to her for her graduation. My husband insisted our daughter call these friends, talk with them, and give her thank yous by phone. Our daughter has known these friends for most of her life. When she made the call, the friends were not home, so she left a message asking them to return her call. Our daughter feels it is now the responsibility of the friends to return her call so she can apologize to them. Our friends are hesitant to return our daughter's call because they know why she is calling and feel it's our daughter's place to contact them. We also feel it is our daughter's responsibility to reach out until she has made contact with them. Our friends are not avoiding our daughter. We feel it's not their responsibility to contact someone who owes someone else a very heartfelt apology. Just a side note, our son, 34, feels as his sister does. Please respond and thank you. Carol. Oh, boy. This is definitely theatrical. There are some <laughs> theatrics at play here. He said, she said, who's right? Who's right? Who's right? Tell us who's right. There's a generational divide. It seems like we got the kids on one side and the grown kids on one side and the parents on the other. I'm And the parents' friends on the side of the parents, too, it seems like. It does. Although it sounds like they're appropriately circumspect about this, not avoiding the daughter. But um, clearly there's a dialogue going on between the parents and these longtime friends. I, I want to start off by keeping my answer really simple. I'm siding with the parents on this one. I think that there is a much more interesting etiquette question at play that involves how you as interested parties talk to someone about their behavior. But from a purely etiquette perspective, I think that it is your responsibility if you owe someone an apology 
to make it happen. <laughs> and if you're not getting the call back, having left a message, I do think that the onus is still on you because that apology is something that's that should be compelling. It should be coming from inside you because you want to deliver it. And um, to me, that would that would provide the direction that it's that it's up to me to reach these people and to reach them in a way that lets them know how serious I am. I'm a little split on this. On the one hand, I think that there, I mean, there, there's a little bit of an automatic assumption going on that she's calling to make this heartfelt apology and that the, the people who've received that message then don't feel that they should be the ones to have to make the phone call back to her. And that I don't necessarily agree with. I think you're absolutely right that it's on the daughter to continually try. And if I hadn't heard back from them in a few days, I would try again. I think that that is a good thing for her to do. But I don't agree with them not returning her phone call. I think that's that's you. You don't necessarily know what she's calling for to begin with. And so I think that when someone calls and leaves a message saying, I'd love to talk to you, please return my phone call. I think you should return that phone call. Um, I don't think you make them wait until they call you at a time when you're home. And you know what I mean? It's like if she hadn't left a message and just said, oh, I tried to get in touch with them and couldn't. She's got to keep trying, you know, Yeah. here she's left the message. They know about it. It's not like they've missed the phone call when the when the when Carol is saying our friends are not avoiding our daughter. A little bit they are. It's not a full avoidance. It's not like we're totally good at but we're only going to interact with you if you call us and catch us on the phone. If you leave a message, we're not calling you back. And that, I think, breaks a little bit of general phone etiquette. I hear it. I, 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 that's, I think it's a, a valid point, and I think it's nested in a larger context. Yeah, no, ex- and that's why I said I think it is on her to keep calling at this point. I think she's she's now had an unreceived phone or an un, unreturned voicemail. And I think she should follow up on that. What do you say if you're the parents? How do you talk to your daughter about this or your son who's tangentially involved, but clearly has an opinion as well? (laughs) I think the son, I wouldn't worry about his opinion too, too much since he's an an outlier on this and he's not actually like the offending party or anything. Um, But it is humorous to have him as a voice. The way families work, it is it's awesome. (laughs) Um, but I think that it's, it's time to tell her, listen, I understand that you feel you did what you should do by making the phone call and leaving the message. And I know that you, you are capable of issuing a good apology to these folks and that you Mm -hmm. love them and and that you care about them. I, I know all these things about you, but I know them too. And I know that they are going to feel awkward trying to return a phone call to you when they, they know it's probably going to be about the apology. Make it easy on them. And please just give them a phone call or, or a couple if you have to until you reach them rather than the voicemail. It's it's Maybe it's generational, you could even say. You could toss it up to there if you wanted to. Mm-hmm. But I think that you just you make the plea to your child and you say, please do this. I know all the good things about you, but this is how we work to repair relationships. And sometimes it means looking at it through the other person's perspective and, and the way they need to receive an apology. Lizzie Post, stop, cut tape. 
Great answer. Are we good? Does that do it? I want to tell you all the reasons that's a good uh, way to approach it. So I'm going to keep going. But I think that's a sample script that I can believe in. I can buy Get that. behind. Okay, uh, cool. You, you can't make someone do something. So you're no. approaching with an ask. So yeah. the please that you start off with is the most gracious ask you can make. It's a request. It's not a demand. Um, and, and you're also uh, telling them. You're bucking them up. It, this can feel yeah. awkward. One of the reasons, and, and I can feel it. I so sympathize with the daughter here. I, this is me. I, I'm late on my thank you notes. My mother is talking to me about her good friend who's waiting for the thank you note from me. I've, 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 had, I've, re- I've received this conversation, this direction <laughs> from someone who gave it well. And it's it's that feeling inside yourself where you know what you should do and it's it starts to feel awkward because you haven't there's a gap between your expectations for yourself and what you're delivering i'm assuming a lot but that's one of the things that can start to be an impediment to just getting it done what can feel like a simple task and the way you talked about it this is so within your capability i know that you understand all the angles here and what's going on and i trust you to to navigate it and deliver it and do it well and I'm providing that little encouragement to go do that. And I'm letting you know it matters. And that little insight, too, that it matters to the other person, that I, I know them well enough. And, and it's a, you know, so, sometimes this is how family and, and close friends work things out. And, and it's a it's a good idea to lean into that here. <laughs> I also want to offer a little appendix to this question. And I, I was going to call it bonus points, but it's not really bonus. In some ways, it's about. Uh, hitting those minimum expectations, I don't think that it's a lost cause to also write that handwritten thank you note. I think the that, one that should have been sent. Yeah. Yep. And and it, it's not because it's going to do the job. I think the phone call is still important. If you've got to deliver an apology, I think doing that well with your voice is important. But just hitting that that minimum note might be one other thing that you could say or would be a way to have that conversation. That note's on the mail. I just wanted to apologize for how long it took to get it to you. I appreciated your gift so, so much. Might be just another way to layer in some effort into the apology in a way that'll help it come across as sincere and genuine. It sort of closes the loop on the issue as a whole by filling the gap that the the lack of thank you note created. Exactly. Carol, we certainly hope this helps, and hopefully all family and friends will be able to gather and enjoy some good quality time together soon. What are you going to say? Well, I want to say thank you, and I want to say it in a way that will please Aunt Helen and Uncle Ron. What would you say if you were there, in person? Our next question is about the host-guest dance. Dear Lizzie and Dan, your discussions of the host-guest dance helped me conceptualize something I've been confused about for years. My spouse and I have always been surprised that guests gush about our hosting. Friends and family are so very grateful for the basics, having their drink glasses quietly refilled, plates removed, condiments and extras offered, beds freshly made, clean towels available, their preferences for activities taken into account. These are very basic host duties. It's like effusively thanking a cashier for ringing up your purchases. I (laughs) finally realized that some kind, generous people just don't know the steps to the dance. Instead of being irritated when hosts haven't prepared my bed, I still find this shocking, or given me clean towels or offered me something to drink or expect me to make myself at home by looking through their cabinets for glasses or rifling through their linen closet – (laughs) 
I remember that some people have never had dance lessons. I am sometimes at a loss about how to compensate for a lack of host skills. For example, can you offer guidance about what kinds of extras a guest can request at a meal with an inexperienced host? It's, of course, rude to ask for fresh gooseberry jam or locally grown organic light cream or gluten-free bread <laughs> made from locally sourced oats. I'm going to add that you've ground yourself. <laughs> I, I, I think that a host is, however, expected to provide typical condiments and add-ons, ketchup for fries, salt and butter for potatoes, and so forth. Once, at a small dinner party, I had to ask for a napkin, a knife, and a glass of water. That was extreme, of course, but... What about less mandatory items? If I'm served coffee, I think it's okay to ask for milk, cream, or sugar, but not for hazelnut syrup or almond milk or turbinado sugar, unless I know the host well enough to assume she has these items on hand. But what about salt and pepper at a casual dinner? I wouldn't ask for that at a formal affair, but at a breakfast or casual lunch, I would. I'm never sure what the limit is if I don't know the host very well. Can I ask for ice for my water? I don't, despite my southern swoon over tepid drinks. <laughs> Can I ask for sour cream for my baked potato? I don't, if they at least offer salt. Thank you for your always thoughtful advice. Best wishes, June. June, I love this email. I just do. It's such a great question. You paint so many beautiful pictures in here of experiences I think all of us have had. There are moments where you end up being a guest of someone who whose hosting dance is quite different from your own, I'll, I'll put it that way. You're right. It's hard to know exactly where the lines of permission are, the, the, those appropriate lines. I mean, I know that's like what this whole podcast is about, but it's fascinating to me when we feel comfortable asking for certain things and when we don't, because you might say... Within your close friends and family, of course, ask for the almond milk, you know, ask for the sour cream. Just ask if they happen to have any on hand, you know, and that's not something you used to do in someone else's home. You, would, you wouldn't ask for things. You'd think, oh, they, they would put it out or provide it or offer it if they wanted me to have it, right? Say that at a dinner party, your host is serving you, you know, steak and, and green beans and potatoes, you don't ask for chips and guac unless those were already served, you know, earlier in the evening as your appetizers. But I mean, I, I like what June is thinking of here in terms of there are different ways that we're going to behave with different people and in different scenarios. Visiting your in-laws, you might feel really comfortable with them and willing to ask questions and for extras. Visiting other in-laws, you might not, you know, even though these are people who are technically really close to you. <laughs> Is it the first visit, the second visit, the fifth visit? I think sometimes that familiarity can help make some of those choices yep. easier. And one thing you're kind of getting at is that familiarity, I think, can help make some of these choices as well as how close you are to someone that, yeah. you know, I'm, I'm incredibly close with my in-laws. But on the first or second visit to their house, I was probably on one kind of behavior. And now that I've been there <laughs> double digits of times, multiple times over, um, I'm much more comfortable asking yeah. or making little requests. So besides the issue of familiarity and kind of closeness and the comfort, you know, how well you know these people, whether or not to make an ask of something additional, one of the other questions you seem to be getting at, June, is the idea of how corrective does this come across? If there 
isn't something on the table that normally would say your host served you burgers and you're right, there's no ketchup. Does it sound like you're you're telling your host that they are lacking or that they didn't do a good job hosting by not putting these things out? And I think, again, it's the closeness and familiarity that's going to make you feel more or less comfortable, whether or not you you decide that, that it comes across that way. I think it could be easy with um, someone who's like your your child or someone you've spent time teaching to for it to sound more uh, like a correction or like a suggestion, like, oh, would have been thoughtful to put out what was it you said we didn't have forks and napkins and glasses at one point, <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, and I think sometimes it's funny how in a f- very familiar situation, sometimes we can almost sound too corrective because there's that comfort level there. And I would try to avoid that. Um, when you ask for things, I think asking for them with a tone that is genuinely just wondering, oh, do you happen to have some salt or or would you mind if I asked for some salt? That's another way to do it, the would you mind if I asked for. And I think that those might be ways to broach it and still keep it from sounding corrective. I think you're circling exactly the right answer here, which and I think you're extracting from the question the the issue that June's really running up against. And it is that question of how do you ask for the things that would make you more comfortable which a host would theoretically want to provide and at the same time do it in a way that I like the term corrective, but doesn't point out the mistakes or um, isn't sort of blaming or revealing of a, of a, a lack of a knowledge lack. or preparedness. Yeah. And I, I think that you're so right that the tone of that ask is sort of defines in many ways whether or not it's appropriate or not. I'm thinking about the more casual situations, the kind of host who would say, make yourself at home. And in their mind, that creates the expectation of go to my cabinet and get a glass of water if you want one or the linen cabinet. Because that's already a more casual relationship, you probably have a little more latitude in terms of making a request of that person. They're probably less likely to be offended because they're not necessarily thinking about those same traditional etiquette structures that mm-hmm. maybe you are if you're if you if you've got a real form for the host guest dance in your mind. So it really is the tone of that ask that is going to determine how it's received because it's not going to be too far out of the expectations of a really casual host that you would be asking for something. And all that being said, I would use it June as encouragement for myself when I'm hosting to be this awesome host that you have described your guests talking about because it sounds like you really create a beautiful host guest dance for your friends. When you describe quietly refilling glasses, uh, removing plates, making sure there are extra types of condiments, you know, not just the the regular run of the mill, or asking if anyone would like anything that they don't see on the table. That's another really great way to be a great host and prompt. Um, So if you're a host out there and you're thinking, oh, boy, I don't do all the things that June just listed, goals. These are great things to aspire to if you want to up your hosting game and just up that level of comfort that you're offering to your guests by thinking ahead a little bit and saying things like, you know, um, do you have everything you need or <laughs> would you like ice for that glass? Um, things like that. I think it, it it's kind of a, a good moment to take and be inspired by. Hitting those marks with ease and having them come from a genuine place inside of you is so instructive. It'll make 
attaining that level of hosting, uh, both something that someone could recognize in terms of the marks you're hitting, but also recognizable as something attainable and doable because of the the way that you do it. And that can be so important. And it reminds me of that host guest dance metaphor that you found so useful and that you introduced this question with. And there's something that I learned in the dance world many years ago, and that's that the more experienced a partner, the better a dancer someone is, um, the better they are at dancing with anybody, no matter what their skill level. And the mark of a really accomplished professional is that they can waltz around the room with their longtime partner and they can also pick up with a, a real beginner who's there for the first time. So I applaud your use of the metaphor. I'm so glad you found it useful. And hopefully that thought is useful for you as you continue to be that excellent dance partner for all kinds of guests. Betty, our hostess, is having a few of her friends to her home for a birthday party. Like everyone else, she thinks that her etiquette is perhaps not perfect, but good enough so that there are no glaring errors. But the housekeeper must tell Betty she has noticed a few errors. This question is titled, Electronic Everything? Hi, Lizzie and Dan. We are expecting our first child later this year. Congratulations to you. With the state of things, we still wanted to celebrate with friends and family, so have opted to do a drive-by baby shower. Oh, this sounds cool. The invites were sent out using a website that sends invitations via text and email, so we don't actually have addresses for everyone. Our registry is also web-based. Gifts have already started arriving in the mail, so I'm starting to think about thank yous. We are planning to do a thank you video post event to distribute to everyone, but also wanted to do individual thank yous. Would it be okay to send thank you notes via email since everything else about the event is electronic? Or do we need to collect addresses of all our guests? Sincerely, thankful expectant mommy, Laomi. Leomi, thank you for the question and congratulations on this very exciting <laughs> moment in life. New baby. Um, in the spirit of simple answers, I'm going to say get those addresses if you can. I'm going to second the motion. I know it's not what anybody wants to hear, but I do think it's a good idea. So let me give a thought about why that might really, really be worthwhile. And the first obvious thought is because then you can send people handwritten thank you notes, which is so, so nice particularly if people have made an effort, taken the time to participate in a shower where there is some expectation of gift giving, they've probably given gifts. And due to the nature of the shower, no matter what you do, a drive-by shower, I'm thinking there's going to be a little bit less individual human-to-human contact. So I'm going to uh, be thinking a lot less, yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to try to seize every opportunity I can to really connect with my guests in ways that feel significant and meaningful. And I think the follow-up handwritten thank you note is such an opportunity to do that. But I'm even looking beyond that horizon. I'm thinking about building that database in your life, building that spreadsheet, that list where you actually have addresses for the people in your life that are the most important to you, that you're the closest to. Um, And there's no time like the present. There's no excuse like this one to start collecting those addresses and... Maybe there'll be another baby shower down the road. 
That's why we're business partners, folks, because he thinks of the good stuff, the long-term effect of it. <laughs> no, that is, Dan, that is such a good suggestion for a reason for why you would do this. And I'm not saying that the reason of actually thanking someone, you know, isn't enough. Um, but I think that these parties offer moments for you to build on those lists, you know, just the same way that a kid's birthday party would allow you that same um, way to build in your child's community. And then you've got the addresses to send out the birthday list next. Anyway, you get the idea. It's a really good reason for something that's already a good thing to do. <laughs> and for all of those people that love tech that are thinking to themselves, boy, digital shower, that sounds awesome. A service that's sending evites coordinated with text messages. Boy, that would really reach my friends and family the best. The tech options for when you've got a spreadsheet that's got people's home addresses for sending that holiday card or that announcement, it becomes so easy when those are in formats and structures that let you really take advantage of them. That sometimes having those physical addresses opens doors to whole new platforms that you also might really like to take advantage of once you've got those addresses. You know, you also hear us talk about it when when we bring up the subject of gratitude and thank you notes and, and what does it really mean when we say thank you. And it is also a, a good practice for you. And it's it's not like you said, you were hoping to send out individual thank you emails to people. And I think that 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 shows that you're already in that gratitude mindset. But there is something kind of special about that handwritten thank you note, even for you as the person writing it, you know, it does have a certain impact of, of gratitude that's different from, I think, the texting or the uh, emailing of the thank you where you're hitting send as opposed to popping a stamp on it and putting it in the mail, you know. I couldn't agree more. Laomi, thank you so much for the question. We hope that your drive-by shower is awesome and that you have a wonderful time welcoming your first child later this year. I guess Joe's friendship turned out to be sort of infectious. From Joe, I learned how to be a friend and how to make friends. That one friendship often leads to others. And best of all, to appreciate and enjoy people of many varying backgrounds and personalities. Yes, sir, with friends, it's a great old world. Our last question is about stationery and surnames. This question came to us through Facebook. Dear Lizzie and Daniel, I hope you're well. I have a question regarding correspondence cards. I would like to create some customized stationery for my family. We're parents with one son. But myself and my husband have different surnames, so we can't use the typical The Smith Family format. What would you recommend as the most classic form? Smith-Jones or Smith-Jones? Question. Shall I use any punctuation? I imagine that this kind of card can be used only by family, and for any private correspondence only from one member of the family, we should create and use personal cards. Is this correct? Also, could you explain when you have to cross out your name on the card? Thank you so much, and I hope to hear from you soon. My best wishes, D. 
D, thank you so much for a technical question. I love I love the the technical etiquette questions because it makes us have to sharpen our, our skills a little bit. In terms of the family names, I think there are a couple of different styles that you could use and that you should go with whatever you think looks good and that feels right to you. Um, I believe the hyphen between might make it seem like you are the Smith-Jones family as a hyphenated name. Um, the slash seems to look a little less formal, but I could be wrong. Another option might be to put the and symbol in between, the ampersand in between, and and have the Smith and Jones family or Smith and Jones. I had a friend whose family, it doesn't sound like this is what you guys would do, but I had a friend whose family, between the two parents and the kids, there are three last names. And so they use the initials and they, they call themselves the DTL family or something like that. And it's, it's, it each stands for the other. But again, this would be for much more casual, I think, if you went that kind of a route. I could see Smith and Jones. That's what I would personally lean towards, the, the and symbol in between. Dan, what do you think about the idea of who can use this stationery and when you would choose to use it? Lizzie Post, I really like option three there. I like the idea of the ampersands. I like it because I, I just think it would look good. It, it seems uh, there's a graphic component to it. It's a little old. And that gives me my sort of the, my other frame of reference for this, which is tradition and this is one of those places where even though we we said we like geeking out on traditional etiquette, this isn't a place where we get a lot of guidance. Family names like this are um, much more common nowadays than they were 50 years ago. So this isn't a place where we can look too far back in the history for sort of good examples or even ideas about how to handle something like this. Um so I'm going with with a choice like, oh, graphically, I really like the way that looks and that sort of pushes me towards that ampersands. Um, the other question that you asked that does have more of a, a concrete etiquette answer has to do with crossing out your name on stationery and oh, yeah. what the purpose of that is, why you would do it. Um, it was designed when, when people had stationery that they used all the time, and it felt very formal in some ways. It had your name on it. It sort of announced who you were. That if you knew someone very well, if you felt close to them personally, you could cross your name out to indicate that, that they don't need to see you. They don't, they don't need to, you to announce who you are. This is just a note from you. So you could do a, a single slash or a cross through your name to indicate that. It was a more common practice if you were using business stationery for a personal purpose. So you would just draw mm -hmm. a single line through that business stationery identifier and that let someone know this was – this was a personal note, not a professional request or reach. There is another question in this question. Within the question. <laughs> um, that has to do about what, when you would use a card, a correspondence card. Like who gets to use it. That was yeah. from the family versus when you wouldn't necessarily want to use it. And in some ways, the appropriate time to talk about that is right after we've talked about using a business stationery for a personal topic. You would draw a line <laughs> through it to indicate that purpose. Generally speaking, you're. I think you're on the right track. You would think of this type of card as something that would be most commonly used or sort of easily identifiably used as for things, notes that are coming from the family. Um, thank yous that followed visits or notes to people that everybody in the family had relationships to in some way. If mm -hmm. you were 
using that stationery for the purpose of correspondence that was more private. If you were corresponding with a friend that your husband didn't know or wasn't close to at all, I think you could still use it. Maybe you would draw a line <laughs> through the family mm-hmm. name to indicate that it was personally <laughs> coming from you. That might be the way to do it. <laughs> this isn't a hard and fast rule. I wouldn't say don't use your stationery for those purposes. It is a family um, it is family stationary, so it should be available to you to use. And to have things that are too specific means you use them much less. Um, so I wouldn't say don't do it. Um, but I think it's a, a good thing to be thinking about as we're geeking out on stationary. Dee, we hope that this answer helps with, with your stationary purchase. And we are very excited for you and think it's a very cool tradition that you're upholding by having some family stationary. Thank you for your questions. Please send us updates or feedback on our answers to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can leave us a voicemail or text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. You can also reach us on social media. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we are awesomeetiquette. Just use the hashtag awesomeetiquette with your post so that we know you want your question, feedback, or comment on the show. If you love awesome etiquette, please consider becoming a sustaining member by visiting us at patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You'll get an ads free version of the show and access to bonus questions and content. Plus, come on, you'll feel great knowing that you help keep awesome etiquette on the air. And to those of you who are already sustaining members, thank you so much for your support. It's time for our feedback segment where we hear from you about the questions we answer and the topics we cover. And today we hear from Megan in Ontario, Canada about episode 311 and the space between runners. Hi, Lizzie and Dan. Thanks so much for answering the question about shared spaces between walkers, runners, and joggers. As an outdoor cyclist and slogger, slow jogger, (laughs) I, in terms of reciprocal courtesies, have a suggestion that has made a huge difference in my enjoyment and safety. Whether I'm traveling on two wheels or two feet, bone conduction headphones. They are Bluetooth wireless headphones that sit outside of the ears. So while I'm enjoying music or my favorite podcast, I can also hear all of the outdoor noises around me, including traffic, nature, and other people passing. Sometimes while on a long bike ride, I use them with my phone's GPS so I know exactly where I'm going when cycling through a new area. Granted, they are not for everybody, but in a lot of areas, there are bylaws against cyclists wearing noise-canceling headphones. Mm -hmm. I hope this helps provide some options to other outdoorsy exercisers. Wishing you and your families a safe and healthy fall, Megan. Yay, Megan. Good, useful feedback. I'll definitely be checking those out. Sounds cool, right? Bone-conducting headphones? I know, right? Thank you for sending us your thoughts and updates, and please, please keep them coming. You can send your feedback or update to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com or leave us a voicemail or text message at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. It's time for our Postscript segment where we dive deeper into a topic of etiquette. And this week, we're going to talk about one of our favorites, Margaret Visser's The Rituals of Dinner. And this week's selection is a section titled Table Talk, found starting on page 262. 
We often get so many questions on this show about table conversation. And I figured that dipping into Margaret Visser's uh, section on table talk and a little bit of history on it would be an excellent postscript segment to dive into. Margaret Visser writes, Talking is, of course, one of the ways in which we rise above food. We are not at the table merely to eat, but in order to enjoy each other's company. It isn't so much what's on the table that matters, said W.S. Gilbert, as what's on the chairs. The ancient Greeks never tired of reiterating that stomach, gaster, was not enough. One needed mind, psyche, as well. That civilized people came together for each other and for philosophy and not just to stuff themselves. A philosopher host like Menedemus would provide a meal for only one or two of his guests. The others would have to dine before coming, bring their own cushions, and be content with a sip for everybody from one half-pint cup, and nothing but a lupine or a bean for dessert. He offered a token dinner, but made it impossible for most guests to come to the party for anything but the conversation. Skipping ahead... The symposium or drinking party was the place and time for discussion, whether serious or trivial. Subjects at symposia ranged from what is love to why meat spoils more readily in the moonlight than in the sunlight, and whether people of old did better with portions served to each or people of today who dined from a common supply. Subjects very often had something to do with food or drink, but the pangs of hunger had to be assuaged before conversation began. In Homeric times, it was considered very rude to expect a stranger to speak at length to his hosts before he had eaten his fill. He was not even asked his name until he had been given dinner. But when speaking began, it was polite to contribute what one had to offer. People knew you by the way you behaved. It was only fair to give them material with which to make their judgment of your worth. In some societies, drinking and talking is done before dinner. A large Sherpa party begins with two, three, four, even five hours of discussion, quarreling, joking, all facilitated by the drinking of beer. A large crowd assures people that they can work through grudges in safety while at the same time assessing the opinion of neighbors and finding out who their friends are. The community can express either consensus or disapproval for the behavior of various members. And ranking, symbolized by shifting seating arrangements, is adjusted among individuals. At a climactic moment, judged with finesse by the host, dinner will appear to please, pacify, and relieve everybody. Silence falls, and everybody gratefully and happily eats. In the silence, any rough edges left by communal friction are smoothed over by the action of eating together. In China and Iran, the traditional rule is also talk first, then eat. I don't know if I could do it, cuz. Do what? Talk before eating? Eat before talking? Which one? Talk before eating. At least as a <laughs> as a form. <laughs> But don't you kind of do that at like a cocktail party or at, at a lot of gatherings? There's kind of almost like a little bit of socializing before as people gather, you know? It's like I feel like it actually is pretty traditional. And I kind of prefer cheese plates and crackers and nuts well, okay, to the main I like course those usually. There too. <laughs> 
but there were a couple things that I thought were really interesting about this passage. Number one was that it began with the idea that adding conversation to a meal, it, it, it elevates it somehow. That, that as humans across the globe, this idea between uh, dining without conversation versus dining with, and that conversation fairly universally became a part of dining in some way, shape, or form. I could, I could be wrong. There might be sm smaller sections of the world where it's really not done. But for most people, it is a place where we, where we talk and converse, and it is over food. And the idea is that you're not just filling up. <laughs> Absolutely. It's an important social ritual, hence the rituals of dinner. <laughs> but but we, we, we say it so often, sometimes those words lose their meaning. And mm -hmm. it really is. This is uh, fundamental to how we structure human relationships. And we are talky creatures. We like to communicate. <laughs> so the idea that that conversation is integral to that social ritual and our experience of it, 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 it makes a lot of sense and draws you into the details. When do you talk? And I, I was sort of joking at the, the start of our comment about how I didn't know if I could do it, that I, I liked the idea of eating and talking and having some food in my belly, feeling sated for that mm -hmm. conversation. But that's also mm -hmm. the tradition that I'm familiar with. I was thinking as you were reading about the rules about business topics at a business lunch or dinner and that there was a right. very traditional structure that said you didn't talk about business at a business dinner and the host was the one who brought it up until after dinner had been eaten. That mm -hmm. for lunches, it was kind of okay to do it once the order was placed or once you were engaged with your meal. Um, so that the shorter duration of that meal allowed for bringing up the business topic a little sooner. But in many ways, I started to think about the formality of that as really conforming to, to that broader expectation that Margaret Visser is describing. How about the parties where you would basically force your guests to not have any food in order to drive the conversation. I mean, that's definitely to an extreme, but it so reminded me of our question today about hosting mm -hmm. and the host guest dance and, and what do you provide and why and how, how would you explain? And I would love to see what any etiquette mavens from, from back in the day would have said about that type of entertaining. And it would probably be that you were so lucky to be invited to your host's house at all that you, you would do whatever, whatever they they put forth, you know, even if it was a simple bean for dessert. Well, and if the structure of that sort of pre-meal conversation is understood or the, 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 the purpose of that engagement is understood, I also liked the way Visser described the, the moment that the food arrives as the moment of peacemaking or the moment of a core uh, yes. that oh, concludes so that experience because that yes. also sort of is, has a lot of harmony with a lot of the ideas that I have about how eating meals together is is so fundamentally important how we build relationships how we identify the people in our lives that are our allies and our friends um, the way she describes that Sherpa party where it's, you know, it, it's like you converse, you figure out who you're friends with, who you're not, what your neighbors are up to, what's going on. And then it probably starts to get a bit heated because now that we're all figuring it out and we're all together, there's like collective judgment happening. 
And that's when the host so timely brings out the food. It's like, it's, it was, it was, I loved the way that she put that all together to really paint the picture of, of how that host's role of, of taking, let, letting their guests get to that point of tension. And then, ah, mm-hmm. uh, here's the wonderful meal. Here are the things we can all agree on. You know, I think of it, Thanksgiving comes to mind big time with that image in my head. And I just think, and the cranberry sauce heals all like, or something like that, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we spend a lot of time thinking about what to say and how to say it. It's nice to take a little detour and think about when. Joey has also found that our new friends often come to like our old friends, just as Joey's new friend liked Ginger. And she likes that. She's going to be his friend. Helping others is another way to make friends, isn't it? We like to end our show on a high note, so we turn to you to hear about the good etiquette you're seeing and experiencing out in the world, and that can come in so many forms. Today, we have an email from Lauren. Greetings, Lizzie and Dan. I just wanted to take a quick moment and salute two different individuals who probably were expecting their good deeds to go unnoticed, but instead, I noticed and each person brightened my day a bit. Yesterday afternoon, I walked out to pull my trash can back to the house after the garbage was collected. To my surprise, my new neighbor, Christy, had brought my trash can back to the communal storage location when she returned her bin. This evening, as I was leaving Lowe's, I noticed a gentleman returning his cart. He put his cart up and then walked over to the parking spot next to the corral, grabbed an abandoned cart, and placed that one in the corral. Then I started thinking of all the different people his act had a positive impact on. The store attendants who will collect carts at closing time, the next driver looking for a parking spot, and our entire community is now a little less messy. It truly is the little things in life. Thank you both and the production team for the show. Keep the episodes coming. Smiles, Lauren. And Lauren, that is so the spirit, and it is so awesome that you took the time to both notice and salute uh, these wonderful people who are doing, I wouldn't call them random acts of kindness. I would say these are intentional acts of kindness. Thank you for sharing, Lauren. And thank you for listening. And thank you to everyone who sent us something. And we're also going to thank everyone who supports us on Patreon. Please connect with us and share this show with friends, family, and coworkers, however you like to share podcasts. You can send us questions, feedback, and salutes by email to awesomeetiquette at emilypost.com. You can call us and leave a message by phone or send us a message by text at 802-858-KIND. That's 802-858-5463. On Twitter, we are at emilypostinst. On Instagram, we are at emilypostinstitute. And on Facebook, we're Awesome Etiquette and the Emily Post Institute. Please consider becoming a sustaining member. This is super easy. You can do do it by visiting patreon.com slash awesome etiquette. You can also subscribe to the ads version of our show on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. And please consider leaving us a review that helps with our show ranking, which helps other people find awesome etiquette. Our show is edited by Chris Albertine and assistant produced by Bridget Dowd. Thanks, Thanks Chris, Chris and Bridget. Bridget.